When I look at the mission of Jesus, there's a couple things that really stand out to me. The first being that when Jesus walked on earth as he was on his mission, his mission was restorative. Now, I like the term restore or restorative or restoration for a couple reasons. First being, if you think of anyone here that maybe likes to restore old bikes or old cars, those kind of people, when they look at that old bike, even though the tires are flat, the paint is chipped and everything's falling apart, they can imagine that bike how it was meant to be. And then they take that bike and where someone like me is like, I don't know, the thing's broken, throw it out. They can take that bike, bring it home, and rebuild it where it stands in all of its beauty. In many ways, sometimes even better than it was originally made. And that's because they restored it. They didn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. They said, no, let me take this thing and make it the way it ought to be. Well, when we look at the mission of Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that was a deep one. <clears throat> when we look at the mission of Jesus, what we see is Jesus looked at people and said, that's not how you ought to be. I didn't design you to not be able to use your legs. I didn't design you to be blind. I didn't think you would die this early in your life. And he looked at people and he said, hey, that's not how you ought to be. And then Jesus brought the power of the kingdom of God in that moment in partnership with his father and his spirit, stepped into that situation and restored it. Jesus' mission was one that was restorative. He was making everything new once again. But oftentimes when we think of Jesus' mission and his goal, we often think of big things. And we think of people that are trying to partner with Jesus in his mission. We think, oh my gosh, that's going to be some huge event. i got to gather thousands of people, sell tons of tickets, wear all the right clothes. That's the only way to partner with what Jesus is doing in the world. But when we look at Jesus' ministry, he's actually showing us how we're meant to live. And in fact, though his mission is restorative and that's dynamic, it was oftentimes very small and simple. Meaning that it was many times Jesus with someone else in a relational setting, whether it's in a public space or in, the, in private, where Jesus is interacting with someone and seeing their life changed. Now, yes, we know that crowds did gather. We know that eventually his execution was public. But the majority of Jesus' mission, while restorative, was also very small and simple. Yet so dynamic, the gospel writers wrote it on paper. The gospel writers shared it with other people, that people that didn't experience Jesus' life could hear the stories of what he did. Then those writers put those things together. And later, gatherings of people came and decided that there would be this Bible that would be created to tell those restorative, small and simple stories. And that those stories then would be able to travel to different nations and travel beyond their lifetime. And now, thousands of years later, we can read about these restorative, small stories of Jesus on mission and what? Be inspired that we can live that too. That we can be a part of that too. Now, this morning I want to talk more in detail about then how does that affect the other parts of our faith. Because if we say that we are now a part of the mission of Jesus, if we say that we haven't just gathered to just only come together on Sunday morning, but yet we're supposed to take what happens here into the rest of our lives the other six days of the week, then that should change then those different things like how we pray, how we read our Bibles, how we have community, how we approach our culture, how we share of our finances. All of a sudden, everything that we've thought about with our faith, if it's not bound within these walls and meant to be lived on, on, on mission with Jesus, needs to begin to shift in our perspective. And my hope is 
over these next several weeks as we get into this idea of being lifestyle missionaries, we'll begin to look at these different elements of our faith with a renewed understanding of how maybe Jesus intended it to be. So I'm going to call these different things practices. And we're going to go through a series of practices of a lifestyle missionary. Now, why am I calling it practice? Well, maybe some of you are like me where you like to watch your hobbies on TV. Particularly for me, I love surfing. I love to watch surfing on TV. And when I watch surfing videos or surfing YouTube videos, I'm super inspired because they make it look so good and so easy, I'm thinking I can do that. For some of you, maybe it's not surfing. Maybe it's making a certain dish. And you're like, oh my gosh, that woman's tomatoes are so red. I can find tomatoes that red. Maybe some of you is like, oh my gosh, this guy built the most amazing jacuzzi in his backyard with the most epic waterfall. I saw it on YouTube. I can do that. And so we watch these things and we're like so enamored that we can do it. And then we go out and we realize we're too fat to surf that fast. <laughs> no, I'm not saying, I mean, that's you, but that's not me. But anyway. Or we start like buying the piping for the jacuzzi and we're short on the piping and the water's coming out of the waterfall. Or all of a sudden we can't find those perfect little red tomatoes. (laughs) And that's because when we're watching on TV, we're watching professional people who have done what? Who have practiced over and over and over again. And now when we watch them do it, they do what? They make it look easy. See, I think we've lost the art of practicing our faith. Because we've been so stressed out that we need to do it perfect. Well, here's the hope. You're never going to do it perfect. That's why it says Jesus was the perfecter of your faith. You're just meant to practice it now. So I want to work through some of these practices that I think are important to us being on mission with Jesus. And the first practice that I want to talk about this morning is the practice of praying. And I've called it praying expectantly, not religiously. Praying expectantly, not religiously. Now, I'm going to go through a story with you all in John chapter 5, which is a pretty dynamic story, and I love this story. And I'm going to read through the story and then talk through it a little bit, uh, but I'm going to do it differently. Instead of just kind of going A, B, C, D, E, I'm going to go E, D, C, B, A. Do my alphabet backwards. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to go through the story. I'm going to make some comments to the story. But then I want to work us backwards to the story because I want to explain a little bit of what I mean by praying expectantly and how that looked for Jesus and how he set the model and what that might mean for us. So if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and we'll read following through to verse 19. But I will make some ABCD comments as I read. Hey, just, just follow with me. Okay, <clears throat> John chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, there was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, he knew he had been ill for a long time, and he asked him, Would you like to get well? Obviously, Jesus, I'm sure he'd like to be. I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water bubbles up, someone else always gets there ahead of me. Clearly, this guy is a blamer. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. 
Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. It's like, oh my gosh, he was laying on it for 38 years. Can we celebrate a little bit? (laughs) But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Again, this guy's such a blamer. (laughs) Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now he's a blamer, an accuser. This guy, like, Jesus, you could have picked someone better. Okay, verse 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. And we need to think a little bit about Jesus' perspective on his relationship with his father. Because he's dealing with religious leaders. And these religious leaders have said this. These are the religious settings for our life. If you want to worship Yahweh, this is how it happens. And you need to do these religious things. And God only works in these religious settings. But Jesus came and was very disruptive to that. Because he challenged that idea saying, I don't think my father, actually, he said, I know my father doesn't only work in those religious settings. He actually works in all kinds of settings. Some would say Jesus, his, that his mind and his thinking was consumed with the fact that God was always around him everywhere that he was. We live in an age right now where you might find YouTube videos or Facebook viral videos going around on the idea of being mindful. That we are so distracted as people because of social media, our work, our jobs, our busy schedule, our crazy little kids. That distracts me all the time. That we have a hard time being present in the moment. Now, when you look at what Jesus is saying and you think about that, if you wrestle with that idea, it actually makes sense. Because if you think about it, your past really doesn't exist anymore. Now, you might feel some effects of it, but what happened in your past, even before you came here this morning, if you got the extra jelly donut, it's already going to your hips. There's nothing you can do. (laughs) So I use a different one. Maybe like you should have brushed your hair. Anyway, so it's in the past. You can't change it. It's back there. It's already done. In many ways, it's no longer real. But then there's this idea of our future. But really, can we control the future? If we really think about it, our future, it's not real yet. We might think it's real. We might try to make the decisions like it's real. But as of right now, we can't control what happens in our future. We might all walk out these doors, a massive earthquake could occur, and California could become the new Hawaii. We don't know. It's, it's in the future. We can't control it. In many ways, the future is not yet real. So if our past is no longer real, and our future is not yet real, then the most real moment of our entire lives is the current moment we're in right now. This is the realest it's going to get. 
Now this is the realest it's ever going to get. Now this is the realest it's ever going to get. Right? Like the moment that we're in, this is the most real moment of our entire lives. And guess what? Jesus died for that moment for each one of us. Jesus gave his life for that moment. Jesus opened the love of his father, restored relationship with him, opened the doors of his kingdom, not for a time in your past, not for a time in your future, but for right now. That every waking moment that we're in, we can have everything of the kingdom of God, not because of every, anything we've done, but because of everything he has done for us. But here's the problem. We're asleep to that reality. We're not awake to that reality. And we've allowed the religious activities in our week to determine when we do wake up to the goodness of Jesus in our life. So we go through work and we're trudging through work, walking all through work, sleepwalking. Until we come to church on Sunday morning, we're like, whoa, Sandra's singing, come on, Jesus. I can feel him, he's amazing. And then we go out of here and we go back to sleep. And then Wednesday or Thursday comes around, we're like, Jesus, change my life, I love you. Thank God I'm not on the worship team. <laughs> and then we go, wait up the next day and we go back to sleep. Why? Because we think Jesus is only going to work with us in those religious settings. We think that's the only time that he's moving. And then, in fact, we sing songs like, Lord Jesus, please come down. Please travel here like he's stuck in Detroit on a delayed flight and he can't get here in time. But Jesus understood something. And he was living it for us to know. Hey, guess what? My God, my Father is active all the time, everywhere, 24 hours, seven days a week. But are you awake to it? Are we awake to that? Do we, do, we, do we wake up in the morning stirring our hearts to say, wow, Lord, you're here with me already. I can't, literally, as the psalmist says, I can't even run away from your presence. Now, it's funny because in a lot of ways, that's why creation is so amazing. That God would design it that way, that we would look at it every day in awe and wonder, realizing it's almost like we're cradled by God as we're cradled in this creation. But the problem is in this day and age, we've lost a bit of that mystery because we have science. And science breaks everything down for us. And it's like, oh, the sun comes down, the chlorophyll, and the plant lights up, and it does all these things, and it grows, and all that. Water falls, and it goes up to heaven, and then it comes back down again. Evaporation occurs. And we have all these scientific reasoning to what's happening around us. When you think about back then, and they didn't have that reasoning, they lived in that awe of creation. They would pray and cry out that God would send rain. Because they knew when rain fell, seeds sprouted, and they had the chance to eat. They had a constant wonder. And unfortunately, we've become so inundated with information, we've lost that mystery and that wonder. That's why it's even more important for us to make a practice where we wake up every day and say, Lord, I want to be awake to what you're doing around me. I want to take a moment and see the wind move in the trees. I want to see the clouds move over the blue sky. I want to wonder at your creation going, who am I that you made this for me? And that when we pray in that manner, not saving it for the only times that we have religious activities in our life, that when we work in that manner, connected to God in that manner, then he goes, okay, let me show you what I'm doing around you. Let me show you the ways I'm working around you. 
Let me show you who I'm touching, whose life I'm moving on. Don't get caught and wrapped up in your own brain and your own self-pity and all your funk at work. Be awake to what I'm doing. Let me give you a new purpose, a new power for your work. You're there on mission with me because I'm already in your workplace trying to work with the heart of your difficult boss or your difficult coworker. I'm already in your neighborhood. I'm already in your golf club. I'm there with you with that tennis person that you just want to hit them with your racket sometimes. (laughs) But would you be awake to that? Would you pray expectantly, not just religiously? Now, what's fascinating to me is the man that Jesus approaches has been sick for a while. And what's interesting to me is that those, this area, these, these porches, had many lame, sick, and blind people on them. But when Jesus showed up, God said, I'm working on this one. Jesus could have healed them all. But if he would have healed them all, he wouldn't have been able to show us a model that it's not about just walking up and healing everyone. It's about interacting with our Father and saying, what are you doing around me and how am I to partner with you in this situation? And so Jesus, though, could have healed everyone, walked up to just one man. And this is the best part. This dude was a blamer. I would submit to you, he was a complainer. I would venture to say that this man probably barely had any faith. It doesn't say he was there for 38 years praying to, the, praying to Yahweh to heal him. It doesn't say he was there for 38 years and he was known in his community as the person that deserved the healing above everyone else. It doesn't say any of that. All it says was he was there for 38 years and when Jesus rolls up, the first thing he does is blame his sickness on someone else because he can never get down to the water fast enough. In some ways, his heart is hard. His mind is not on the things of God. But guess what? God was working on this man in some way. How do we know that? Because Jesus walked up to him and God said, this one, son, this is the one I'm working on. And Jesus spoke those words and that man was healed. See, the people in our workplaces, they don't have to be with perfect hearts. They don't have to be lined up praying to God to heal them. They don't have to be doing all the right things or having gone to church several weeks. That's not the goal of what we're meant to do. Our job I'm awake, Father. I want to be on mission with you. You're already everywhere around me. Show me where you're working. And when you speak, I'll be obedient. I'll step out. I won't make the judgment on this or that or who deserves it or who doesn't deserve it. I won't set up the scenario and say, well, God's not going to heal that person. Or I, need, I have to bring them to my church place for my pastor to heal them. No. <laughs> Jesus is saying, listen. My father is always active around us. My father is always at work. And guess what? This is Jesus' words. I only do what I see the father doing. That's the call for us. That's the practice we're meant to live in. That we would be people that spend our time remaining awake to the spirit of God, working and moving around us. That we would walk out thinking I'm here as a person to help put people in touch with God. I'm not the one that's supposed to heal them. I'm not the one that's supposed to bring the kingdom of God in the, in the physical manifestation of spirit to have that happen. No, God does all that. My job is just to be obedient to where he's working already. We're meant to be a people in this community putting people in touch with God. Not just in the religious situations of our life like Sunday morning or Thursday night, but every waking moment of every day of our lives. That we would be people partnering with him in his mission, 
in the small and simple ways to see people restored. And that's the kind of prayer Jesus asked for. That we would give our lives to that. That we would be obedient when he speaks, being awake to his presence moving around us.